0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm
1: Andy Williams. Hi, I'm Joe Redfern uh, and we are delighted to have Emily back with us today. And we have a special guest. Over to you, Emily.
2: Yeah, uh, my name is Emily Horgan. I'm an independent media consultant. And I managed to convince a very smart guy called Andrew Rosen to come and join us. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself and give give your spiel?
3: Yeah, sure. Hi. Uh, th- thank, you, thank you all for having me. Yeah. Um, uh, my name is Andrew Rosen. Uh, I'm the founder of Parkour. Parkour is uh, a newsletter uh, that's about the sort of sh- seismic shifts in uh, media and helps you identify them and navigate them. Um, and then secondly, I, I have a monthly column for the information uh, called Medium Shift where I talk about um, transformation in media. Uh, the, the Parkour is distributed by the information um, and I've, I've started to build out a consulting business with media companies too.
2: Awesome, thank you so much for joining us um, and I, 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 I read Parkour, your insights are always like help me kind of uh, digest the, the big shifts that we're seeing in, in particularly in media and streaming quite a lot so um, I'd love to just kick off because I know there's like some key trends that you see coming like you know in, in the current moment kind of Q4 and as we go into 2023 um, so I'd love can we, can we kick off there would that be okay?
3: Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I, you know, I think, I'm happy to talk about the trends. I'm much more interested in getting your guys' perspectives on them, just because I, you know, I, I spend so much time with them that when I when I'm with three really smart people, it's much more interesting to hear how they see them.
2: Oh, awesome! And um, well, so the first one, like uh, on your website, parkour.com, um, is that media companies have millions of credit cards on file, and what's next in streaming? So I'd love to hear you explain a little bit more about how you see the implications of that and, and examples and stuff like that and yeah. Uh, and then we can start, we can start chewing the
3: fat. Sure. I mean, so, so it's the, the, I mean, the most relevant one for this podcast is Disney, right? That Disney has, I mean, they tell you they have 235 million, but there's a lot of double counting and triple counting in there. So let's say there's 150, 160 million in there. Um, but they have 150 and 160 million credit cards on file with recurring payments monthly. Uh, that is an entirely new business and the you know and and it's replacing the legacy linear model where you just got you got those payments from cable companies uh in addition to advertising revenues but now you have this direct consumer relationship with over 100 million people for paramount um that's what 70 80 i mean they are getting they're starting to climb up i think closer to 90 uh million consumers mm. worldwide um, and then uh, Peacock has $20 million, uh, but then you know, I guess you have to include uh, uh, you know, Sky Showtime and all these other services. But the point is that all these legacy media companies have never really wanted to understand the customer the way that a direct-to-consumer business does. And now they have all these credit cards on file. Now they have all these, um, these relationships. Now they need to understand their consumers. What do they do? What happens next? Yeah. And, and, you know, I got really, you know, my ears perked up when Bob Chapik, the Chapik was, uh, uh, Chapik was, was CEO of Disney and he was talking about Disney prime and, you know, D 23, they had all those announcements about people who had a Disney plus account getting all these special perks. And so I think that the, uh, sorry, do not disturb. Uh, but the, the, I think that the problem is, the problem is that. You know, it's it, it fascinating that chapter was pushed out because I actually think the business logic of what he was saying was right. Like if you do have these if you do have these credit cards on file and if you know what they what they, what they want, then there's ways to create additional delight, right? That that yeah. and that delight that you can monetize. And you know, what does it mean all of a sudden somebody's attachment to your content is no longer through your first party content through a third-party distributor. It's your first party content through a first party distributor. And then it can also be through a first-party merchandising channel, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you know, we can sort – of, I wanted to lay it out there, but that's the way that I thought about the theme because I do think that it is – the scale of the achievement is really quite something, right? That the scale of Disney having 150, 160 million credit cards on file, but they don't want to go – but they – like, for whatever reason, Iger is rejecting the business logic that Chapik was pursuing, but I actually think Chapik, Chapik – uh, I'm getting his name wrong. I'm just totally butchering it, but <laughs> that he, that he uh, um, when you hear it last, if you forget what it sounds like, um, but that yeah. he was, uh, but that he was, that I do think that it was notable that he was a direct-to-consumer CEO, sorry, well, I guess, yeah. direct, head of the direct-to-consumer division who was talking about Disney as a direct-to-consumer business and the board and Iger rejected that. And that to me is a really interesting dynamic presented by having hundreds of millions, over a hundred million That's credit cards
0: that that's yeah. that's interesting. I had one thought on that which was that do you think that do you think his background in parks might have helped that mindset because in a way with parks once you're in the parks you're kind of in an ecosystem where um you're trying to kind of reduce any of the barriers to people cons- being able to spend their money.
3: So so I think there's two answers to that question. I think the answer is yes. Um but the the, the other answer to that question which I'm on a learning curve on and I and I you know it's it, it was it was an insight that led me to start parkour, and the more that I write parkour and the more that I do my research and my analysis, the more that it emerges as a disconnect, which is I think Chapik's understanding of uh the consumer and of the direct-to-consumer business model is actually not a company-wide skill set. And right. I think that the disconnects I think I think both I think Iger, the Disney board, I even think Chapik may have underestimated the dynamics of that disconnect, right? That, you know, there's a there's a great quote from um, that I used in a recent uh, opinion piece from a comic named Mitch Hedberg who talks about moving to Los Angeles after being, um, you know, a, a stand-up comic, and they say, all right, you know, um, can you act? And he's like, you know, that's like being a world-class chef and being, you know, saying uh, somebody looking at you saying, well, you can cook, but can you farm? And I do think yeah. that, that people have... Built careers based on very specific skill sets that don't account for direct-to-consumer business logic that don't account for the complexities of under- owning the the consumer relationship, and I think that in a weird way, I, I, it's a it's a disconnect that I'm starting to realize that I may not have appreciated the scale of, but I think that Disney uh, may have realized that it didn't appreciate the scale of, and that may be why I, you know it may be one of the key reasons why Iger came back.
1: Yeah. I, I have a, a quick question. Um, in terms of what what are their options then, given that they have all of this data, uh, this knowledge and insight into their consumers' behavior, what, in your view, could they do diff- differently? Could could they do kind of vertical bundling, direct-to-consumer products? What what are their choices? What are their options?
3: I mean, I, I, mean, I think, I mean, this goes back to the, you know, the. I, I think that, that's why I think that Chapik was right, right? Which is that I do think that he was, he was basically saying like we have to monetize these assets in multiple ways we have to figure out how to make these people happy like we have to do this and i you know i don't know if the organization was ready to do that but i don't you know at the same time i don't think it's the organization's in the organization, it's going to sound sort of controversial, but I do think this is true. Which is, I don't, I don't. If the organization's wrong, then so what? Like, if he, if he's, if he's understands where this is headed, then he should have had the backing of the board and shouldn't been allowed to do what he needs to do. Now, Disney's a creative company, right? That, that also, and and, I, and the creative institution is really powerful. And they said, you know, we can't do this. So, you, so the, the answer to your question ends up being kind of a hypothetical, right? Which is, what is a business? What is, what is a media conglomerate? with a powerful creative culture supposed to do when it's very clear that for it, for it, for in order for it to evolve, it has to take the hundred, 150 million credit cards it has on file and figure out different monetization models to plug into it. Um, you know, you've talked about Crunchyroll on, 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 past podcasts and, you know, I, I've written about Crunchyroll. Um, and Crunchyroll is a really interesting example because, you know, they are, they're tiny, right? I mean, they're what, they have 5 million subscribers? So they are at a fraction mm-hmm. of Disney's scale. Um, so they don't have, and they don't, they're not, I mean, they're young. I mean, they're, what, they're less than a decade old. Um, and so they don't have these operational or cultural constraints, um, but they are constructed to say, you know, it's interesting, they were a streaming company, and then when Sony acquired them, they merged them with Funimation, and then they, but they didn't, Merge them for the purposes of having a streaming business. They merge them for the purposes of having an anime entertainment business, and and a business that could do first, you know, uh, could do theatrical releases, could do second-party, secondary distribution, uh, could do merchandise, and so it ends up being this hybrid of streaming being the the subscription, and then they offer different mechanisms within the ecosystem to monetize the consumer so this they released a movie recently i don't remember the name of it and oddly all the conversations about it uh don't mention the name but they had they released a movie in the past two weeks in theaters and it grossed 10 million and the the movie is not an original movie it's two episodes of one show merged with the third episode of another show wow and and but you know at a $20 $20 closer to $20 average ticket price. Right. I think it's like 500,000 of their 500 to 700,000 of their, of that, uh, of those 5 million signed up. I mean, it's, and that's to watch it or it went, went to the theaters to watch it. And so all of a sudden you have this powerful ecosystem where it's, you know, they're taking original content that they own and they're going to the ecosystem and they're saying, Hey, you know, you've seen, you may have seen this, but go see this in theaters as a, as a unique experience. And people pay money for it. And so now you've got the monthly, recurring monthly revenues, but then you're grossing uh, or you're netting out whatever from theatrical for basically a a sunk cost for content and figuring out how to. And so it's a really, like, and so it's just a very. it's it it, the reason why crunchyroll is interesting is because it has echoes of the disney model i mean it's not the conglomerate but it's you you can look at the individual moving pieces and you can look at the business logic you can look at the five million credit cards on file and you can say this isn't that hard for disney to pull off
2: yeah Um,
0: Yeah. Uh, but uh, but crunchyroll's also got an incredibly passionate grassroots tribal fan base that yes found a way to monetize and it's very interesting Theatrical example that you gave, because I think that potentially opens up a window into how the studios might strategize between uh, between streaming and theatrical releases as well, in a way that's kind of a win for both aspects of the business.
3: Well, and, and Sony CEO Tony, I love the point about the you know, the passionate fan base. Like so, uh, it's the Sony uh, Entertainment Pictures. Um, uh, uh, CEO Tony Vincecara was interviewed by uh, the Ankler recently. And he said, he said, they're obsessed. I mean, you know, they're loyal, but they're obsessed. And, 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 and so, and they're not, you know, his, he's, I don't know if he's talking about a hundred percent of the subscribers, but the fact that he, that, that you, the, the thing that's interesting about them is that if you can just figure out how to monetize even a fraction of them to get them to pay some multiple more per month. You've got a great business. You've got you know, you've got the people who are just going to be totally irrational. I mean, that's that's the mobile gaming business, right? What was it that like the top you know the that that majority of eighty percent of the sales comes from like the top one percent of users. I mean, it's the I mean, there's the, the, the there's something about these models where if you can, if you figure out who how to make the people who are really obsessed and really involved really happy, that you can do quite well. And and I think you know, in theory, having one hundred and fifty million credit cards on file. Uh, and certain, and 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 having a database of parks visitors should make that easier but i, I you know it, it, disney hasn't gone down that path or they've rejected that path
2: but is there a point there Andrew? though that like when you've 5 million who are passionate about one thing finding those niches are, are easier i mean the example of crunchyroll like actually reminds me of um something m- many of you probably haven't heard of it's a, a latin american telenovela kids telenovela called violeta which was one of disney europe's major franchises outside of English-speaking markets. So lots of people haven't heard of, heard of it. And, you know, they did. They ran theatrical releases of, like, episode one of the new season and, that were hugely subscribed. Um, but that was, like, again, a really passionate individual fan base. And I guess the question with Disney is, like, they would have so many niches, you know, at, in the 160 million subscribers they have, there's many millions, five, like, you know, many increments of five million who are passionate about Well, Marvel obviously is going to be higher, like Star Wars, do they need to kind of like pull it out and kind of, you know, smorgasbord it a bit more, if that's even a verb?
1: Yeah, I think uh, just just to qualify, I think that's interesting. And and, and again, it it brings to mind WWE for me as well, slightly different, but still a passionate fan base. Uh, And you look at WWE and they have one of the biggest YouTube channels on YouTube, right? Because. They're super serving their fans, and their fans reward them with that passionate kind of tribal loyalty. Buying. So they've they found a way to do it. It's a slightly different monetization strategy, but they found a way a similar way to Crunchyroll to do it. So you know, what what are Disney missing? I guess.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, maybe. Go,
3: go ahead.
0: I was, all I was gonna I was just gonna add that. You can see how it would work for Netflix to do, for instance, a movie, a theatrical release of Stranger Things. So kind of um, a only in the theatre, two hour um, story around that universe and those characters. And and I think that would do do really well. And it's kind of the marketing is already built into the to the franchise. So you can see how Disney surely would be able to kind of leverage um, that aspect of it.
3: Yeah, I, I think the the, the the guys you guys talked about niche in recent podcasts, and I do think that that's the that I, I do think that we're kind of hitting on this really. I mean, Emily, your point's a really important point, right? Which is that Disney may not really you know, like. I, I made re, I made a critique of of Disney in a recent opinion column where I said, you know, I think that Iger doesn't realize that he that 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 his argument for pivoting away from what uh, what Schaefer was doing is is that. Uh, uh, that he's, it's, it's a niche business, like, you know, a, a content company that a company that pivots away from trying to understand its consumers and simply focuses on content is a niche business in, in 2023. But the, the point that you're making is an interesting one, right? Which is that Disney's actually, if Disney really stepped back and looked at what it had through 150 million in credit cards on file is that it actually just has all these pockets of really passionate niche mm-hmm. fans and that the business... You know, that the creatives can keep on doing what they're doing, but it's actually the, the distribution and marketing aspects of the business that really need to be rethought. And, that, that, and, that, and, and if you keep going down that path, you think, well, actually, the thing that Chaper got wrong is not that it shouldn't be, you know, Disney Plus as this mass marketing tool. It's actually Disney Plus as a tactical marketing tool, right? That, that maybe the people who engage with Bluey are just like super crazy and passionate about Bluey and disney plus should be the the tool for engaging bluey fans but it may not it may not be as valuable for engaging fans of mickey mouse i mean and so it's just a but it's you know it's a very different business model and again it requires a very different understanding of the of conversion funnels and the direct consumer relationship Mm -hmm. and consumer data that let's be real probably isn't taught in most mba programs right now or in in Mm -hmm. most management programs i mean it's uh, i do know that it's taught at like um in IAC, uh, that they, that they have like an off, uh, IAC has a bunch of direct to consumer businesses and they have like an off campus, uh, off-site for new employees down in Texas or something that, where they, uh, they, they teach them kind of understand the direct to consumer business model and economics. And, but it's, it's a really, it had, again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, like maybe Disney just doesn't understand the direct to consumer funnel, right? That, that, mm-hmm. that it's, there are people within it who understand it, but Operationally and culturally, uh, beyond the parks business, they just don't.
1: And it, it makes me realize how much money potentially Disney are leaving on the table. Given yeah. that, even if, even if they picked five of their potential niche niches uh, and, and moved towards the kind of arcu that I suppose Crunchyroll has, you think about how that multiplies, and that's a huge amount of money that they're leaving on the table.
2: Yep. And like okay. if it's not Disney, like, you know, Disney actually have the operations to monetize direct to consumer beyond streaming, whereas mm. all the other mar- like, you know, Viacom and, and, and uh you know, Peacock etc. they don't have you know, they don't have parks, they don't have Disney store, they don't have you know, that their operations at direct to consumer are totally limited.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Talking about passionate fan bases, that was making me think that kind of it set up the next question quite nicely, which was We talk a lot about the creator economy. Well, I find it more useful to think of it as the personality economy a lot of the time. But Hollywood and kind of a lot of the big studios, they kind of rely on being able to discover new talent and utilize new talent. Is that creator economy, personality economy, a good source for that talent? Or is it just a category error to think that, that that's going to feed naturally into the talent pool of kind of Hollywood and all the studios?
3: Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I, it's, it's a related problem, right? Which is you, and you guys have talked about this, which is that you have all these creators who have spent, who have built their careers, uh, and their content models around an obsessive understanding of the, of the consumer. And, but the, you know, do that, does that translate into Hollywood? And you can look at somebody like Logan Paul, who, uh, you know is a successful creator and he's gone into the WWE seamlessly, right? I mean like like it's really kind of impressive that he's become that kind of character and, and that much of a talented athlete. He's a talented athlete anyway, but to be to be able to be a WWE wrestler, professional athlete, you know, sort of a professional athlete, uh is really it's it's quite something. Um you know I it's it really has been a tension over the past few years, right? Who is Miranda Sings who failed horribly on, on Netflix, right? That she just, it just didn't go anywhere after she had a Netflix show. Um, and so there's, there is that angle, like the individual talent, are they Hollywood talent? Right. And the, I think the answer is no because they reject, they reject anybody shaping their personas that they control their personas. They evolve their personas that they prefer to be dynamic and, and, um, and agile. Um, and Hollywood is not dynamic and agile. I mean, you know, you package somebody and, and, and you, re- you repeat the packaging. And so I think that, you know, the, but, but at the same time, that I'll tell you something interesting. I did a presentation um, in Germany for a German media company for the trainees. Um, and I talked about the creator economy, they talked about the exact topic that we're talking about and they all looked at me funny and they said you know we don't have it's not as important for us in germany because the creators are not like german culture is not about showing your success and showing off your success and showing your wealth that 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 actually you know that we were kind of horrified by Mr Beast going to antarctica and planting a flag for shopify on a mountain that 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 was not at all um Something that we thought was that that resonated with us, and that's you know, and, and I think that there's you you could say that there's Hollywood aims to be more universal in themes, but you get the sense that the creator economy is actually a lot more local in in in, in themes. And so it's I don't know. It's 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 the the, the challenge in all this is. Even even if it's more local in themes, even if it's if the, the talent is different, even if talent's more agile and how they evolve in their relationship with the consumers, the problem for Hollywood is that advertisers increasingly see that as premium content. That that the IAB just recently observed that spending on creator content by advertisers is growing is is growing faster than spending on um, you know, legacy media content that was traditionally in Hollywood content that was traditionally considered premium content, and so that the 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 comparison is very much an advertiser driven one right that and but it's also one that's kind of driven by the how technology has democratized the ability to create great looking content and edit it
1: and i think going back to your point about advertising as well what i like about the creator economy and that, that that i've certainly observed is going back to your point about you know by nature it's more local they have forensic knowledge of their audiences and therefore the advertisers know that their advertising dollar is going to be much more efficiently spent right we all know about how you might as well just burn money rather than put it into facebook ads but actually (sighs) these creators know their audience and so advertisers are looking at these creators with their authenticity and with their knowledge of their particular niche and knowing that those advertiser dollars are going to work much harder in that sense
2: yeah 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 sure. i think that's what i was thinking i was like that it's it's it actually relates to point one of like really really understanding your niche even if mm-hmm. it's and it doesn't always have to be the kind of traditional audience segments it's it's, it's down to the kind of fandoms and the communities that these creators um cultivate. Um, and then they know how to monetize.
0: Yeah. And they kind of demonstrate that themselves. So kind of this personality um, economy where you can kind of, you can create your own brand, your, your own products, like prime, for example, with SideMen. men, that, that was an enormous endorsement of the fact that you've got a incredibly powerful marketing base to be able to launch a product. They're kind of suddenly they've got one of the biggest drinks products on the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, based yeah. on their personality, I haven't drunk it and maybe it tastes delicious I did, that's
3: terrible it's not a good drink it's the first time I've had a drink I had a drink that was like for public consumption and I felt like this thing is engineered in a way where it doesn't really care Like it, it, it made me feel ill, I really did not feel <laughs> after drinking it
0: yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me
3: yeah.
1: But oh gosh. In terms of, um, you know, in your view, sorry to jump in, Emily. This this idea of creators as media businesses, or oh, burgeoning media businesses. I mean, again, going back to this taking control of their own destinies, which is not something that Hollywood necessarily would let them do. They are taking control of their own licensing, the brand extensions. We've got Prime. The side men are looking at hospitality. Now, you know, we've got Mr. Beast with his Feastables line. How soon before one of these creator media businesses decide that they're going to get into animation or creating IP themselves?
3: It's a good question. I mean, I think Mr. Beast is had an interesting conversation yesterday, where you know, was Mr. Beast's Feastables his idea, and he approached a chocolate company, or was it the chocolate company approached him? And he came up with the idea, right? And, and, and I think that, that's, that that's, that's a way of answering your question, right? Which is, I don't know if they nat- naturally have ideas for pushing their brand into animation or businesses that don't really make you know, that, that may not seem like they make sense, but um, they can make sense, right? That, that Mr. Beast made a chocolate business happen because he's got 120, 100, 120 million subscribers to his channel on YouTube. Um, and there's 2.6 billion you know, monthly active users of YouTube around the world. So there's, you know, he doesn't need a subscriber for it to, to be consumed and to sell a chocolate bar. I do think it, it, it's a, it's a really great question because you know I do think it's the thing that the Churning Group seems to be focused on, and they made you know they just made that envision that investment in Night Studios, and now they've launched Night Capital to find other creators, but. And I guess Candle Media is focused on a version of this too, right? And and I think Candle Media is actually doing this, right? That they've started to roll out individual characters from Cocomelon, I think, uh, into their new sh- into a new show. So, so it's. I think the short answer is it depends. I mean, I, it's a very weird. You've hit. You've asked a great question that kind of hits upon the weakness of the model that there aren't. You can't look at it and say, "Well, that's you know, that's where they're going to take." this business now, right? That, that, that 40 years ago when there was a sitcom on TV and there was a popular character, you know, the writing room would be like, actually, we could probably do a spin-off show for this character. Um, and you can sort of guess that for shows now, but it's harder to do that for a creator. They, they are, um, you know, the, the spinoffs tend to be like the people who guest appear in their, in their videos and they're compelling enough characters that they start their own channels. Um, I don't know. It's it's a um, it's a really great question, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't even know how to begin thinking about it.
1: I do. I do wonder that as these creators that have grown up living their lives on their channels become parents themselves, then all of a sudden the interest in creating perhaps a new animated kids IP is going to peak. So you, know, we might we might see it in the next five years or so. Yeah.
3: yeah. No, yeah Did yeah. you see that
1: Teen Vogue piece? Did you see that Teen Vogue piece about a a, a uh
2: a, like a vlogger family she she wouldn't be named a vlogger family kid though who was like my my childhood was sold away like all the all the problems all the problems with that particularly for kids who are brought up in these kind of vlogger families like she was like uh my whole childhood was taken away from me i've like i worked my whole way through none of that money is even me put aside for me I, i'm gonna have to leave out my leave my house to work with my parents and i don't see a cent of it and yeah that that was that was an interesting one i saw recently i have to say it's Pretty brutal. <laughs> um, I think the, the the funny, the weird thing about the, 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 the unique thing about creators, I suppose, though, is that kind of relationship with the consumer, and you know, it, it is also it's a ve- it's very barrierless, right? Like that's they've come up on on platforms like YouTube and and um, you know, on TikTok and that, where the whole point is it's free to access, and and you know, that's how they're able to access that kind of an audience. Um and that kind of had me thinking about one of the other trends you'd mentioned, Andrew, which is, you know, this this idea of scarcity in content. Previously, scarcity was value, and and definitely Netflix were, were 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 very inve- invested in that approach for a long time, where ironclad keeping their content for their platform was the key way they saw as adding value. Um, so I'd love to hear a bit more about what what you think about that because. Definitely for kids, scarcity when you're building a kids' brand isn't isn't going to serve you. you need to have everything everywhere all at once like the film
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's a scarcity is an interesting one because scarcity is an it is ultimately about advertising i mean it is about uh, i mean it, it's it's informed by two things right so it is it's in it's the theme is informed by or the trend is informed by um Upfronts, right? That in the U.S., there's upfront sales where that the entire advertising sales process was basically networks would be able to go to advertisers and they say, "You know what our distribution is through our third-party linear distributor, whether it's a Comcast or um, uh, I mean, all these guys have changed names over the years or Charter um, or Cablevision." And so, so these are the audiences we reach, and because we reach hundred million homes around the U S and you want to reach 18 to 34 year olds. Well, we have 18 to 34 year olds watching TV in the millions and, and therefore we have scarcity and therefore you should spend money with us. And now scarcity is Google, Facebook, Roku going to advertisers and saying, you know, if you want to find 18 to 34 year olds in the U S just spend money with, you know, spend however much you want with us over the course of the next month. And we'll, we'll easily reach, a million, 18, to th- you know, a million, 18, there millions of 18 to 34 year olds around the U S. And, and so, you know, the, the question becomes, well, what is scarcity, right? That, 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 when you start going down the path of streaming, scarcity becomes ephemeral, that it becomes, it just becomes instantaneous and then gone. Um, and, and Netflix's model, you know, the binge model creates scarcity over a 28 period, a day of 20, a period of 28 days. And then it's a steep decline in consumption, um, and so you start you start have to when you start looking at that through the lens of scarcity, and you realize that scarcity is ephemeral. Then you can start thinking about their advertising business. You can start thinking about the scale of their business, and you start have start having to ask like, you know, is if there's not scarcity anymore, how is the you know what is the purpose of this business, right? That that and, and of this because it, it's it's. Scarcity is probably the strongest counter argument to any of these streaming businesses, right? That it's, you know, Paramount is, Paramount has surprised everybody with the accomplishment of the scale of its, of uh, Paramount Plus. But if you sat down and you said, well, what do people really use it for? You know, you know from antenna data that they have like a 6.6% monthly churn rate, um, and that you, and that beyond like Top Gun, and and Yellowstone sort of offshoot shows they don't have anything. Uh, I mean they have Nickelodeon content, but they, you know, and, and it's clear Nickelodeon's a big part of what they do, but they don't. We don't really know how Nickelodeon content performs because they don't really show up in any of the ratings, uh, the third party ratings. And so you just have this scarcity just ends up being a question of well, what do you actually have, right? Like like what is the purpose of this business? Because it's not. Because it's 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 not just a you know uh, the old you know the, the the great old days that you know that of of um, scarcity and linear and now it's gone. It's that they're still pursuing the same model that worked in scarcity and streaming, but the value of scarcity is so different, and it's so different to advertisers uh, and the things that create scarcity that create um, moments of of scalable viewing online. Um, are fewer and fewer. I mean, the you know the Chris Rock concert is a perfect example of it on Netflix. That, that was, that that was actually scarcity in the legacy media sense, but in the global sense, which is unusual. Um, that that I was watching it at the same time as somebody who might have been watching it in the morning in Korea. Right. I mean, I, you know, it's um, that 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 was very different to me. I never felt that watching the Super Bowl. I might have known it, but. That person watching the mm. Super Bowl in Korea was not watching it on the same app as me, but I'm on the same app, we're both on Netflix, and we're both getting this live stream. That's scarcity, but it's not scarcity because it ended. You know, there was no yeah. like... Yeah,
0: because yeah. Yeah. it becomes kind of how you, how you ration the content in some respects, doesn't it? That um, the, the time is kind of an ultimate way of rationing content. If it's a live experience, then you've only got that window in which to see it. So as you said, that's the scarcity there. And I wonder with Netflix whether the... We've talked about the ad tier um, platform aspect of Netflix and whether that will allow them to kind of almost introduce scarcity onto the ad tier platform. So, you know, you have kind of... What's the classic scarcity model for sales is time-limited offer that that you have content that's only on the ad tier um, for a limited period of time. So that's kind of scarcity. And I wonder whether... Effectively, we're going to have, find that platforms are having to introduce kind of elements of to, scarcity into their content,
3: and if if they understand their consumers well enough, right, which goes back to the earlier conversation. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, the one the interesting thing about Paramount Plus, the sorry, the next stuff is that they they continue to license that. There's no, like the Walt Garden didn't come up the same way as it did for Disney, for like it did it did with Disney content. They license that to netflix they license it to like older series but still spongebob you know like is a that comfort tv return viewership subscriber retainer kind of it's a yeah subscriber retention kind of flavor um and yet they still put it everywhere i'm sure they still have it for paramount plus but um it it is it is it is in wide distribution for sure
3: and 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 they're amusingly like split personalities about it right because at the one time they'll say (laughs) you like, you know, we we are not we are not limited to a streaming model. You know, it's not, we're, our future. You know, but at the same time, they'll say, ah, you know, we might have regretted licensing out South Park and Yellowstone. It's like, okay, well, like you can't have it both ways. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Is
1: is curation something we we spoke about curation before? Yeah. Uh, and is is curation something that you see? almost oh, making a comeback, really. You know, we, we've we gone through this, this period where there's been unprecedented choice, particularly for kids and, and family viewing. You know, there's all of this content out there, but certainly with younger kids, it's not always, or that self-directing Uh, viewing that came with this unprecedented choice didn't always follow a kid's developmental stage or even the the mood they were in in you know the day at the the right time of day you know they were watching things that was were hacking them up when it was nap time you know and and actually you've had Sky Kids launch in the UK and you've got fast channels popping up that are adopting more of that old curation that we saw on kids' linear TV channels back in the day. Do you think that's something that Will make a comeback, and again, might be a lever that that these that Hollywood can pull in order to attract more quality advertising dollars.
3: It's a great question. The I mean, the Fast model. I, I don't know if you heard the interview with um, the head of BBC Fast's on uh, the End Screen Screen Media podcast, but the, she had this really wonderful quote where she said, um, "She said that I think of Fast as the grandchild of um, S.V.A.D., and it was, it was like, that's a profoundly interesting point. But her basic point was that, um, and I'm sorry, the grandchild of linear, that it's a child of SVOD that like, that, that actually, that, that linear, that fasts are the next, are actually the next phase of FOD of where it, it solves for the creation that, that, that SVOD does it. And, and I think that, you know, the. I really enjoy the curated experience on Pluto. Um, there was a yep. really wonderful conversation on, on the Watch podcast about um, slow TV as some of the best TV to watch, like that, but it changes the definition of entertainment, but that like watching trains going through the countryside, which Emily, I know that you watch with your son, but like <laughs> that, 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 that image, that, that content is actually kind of mesmerizing and it's, it's a form of entertainment on a television. But the, but then when you think about the business model of curation, I mean, the fast model is kind of a weird model, right? I mean, Pluto has what, 70 million users and it makes a billion dollars a year. And so it's, it's, it, that's, it's not a great business. It's not really growing and and, and it's, and it exposes itself to a lot of the weaknesses of the ad market because the ad market is not, is not cohesive enough to really make that model turn into a rocket ship. Um, but it's, you know, the, the point about curation is a really fascinating one, right? Which is, you know, the algorithm curates. The algorithm curates because it sort of understands what you engage with versus what you don't engage with. But then there's cultural curation, which is, you know, here's this zeitgeisty moment and here are the things that kind of reflect this moment, right? That was what MTV was as a channel years ago. And, um, and that's what every entertainment brand has ever been when they understand that there's a moment or every every and distribution uh, channels ever been where they've said they have executives who say this is the cultural moment and this is how we're going to speak to it. Um, that it, it's I like I don't know how you solve for curation in in uh, in streaming. I mean I, I think that fasts do solve for it. Um, I think that it's a really great experience, but the algorithm also offers something really valuable, right? That it's like when you turn this on. Here's, you know, here's the content we know you want to watch served on a plate for you, right? Every time I turn on YouTube, a podcast or a, a short clip show that I watch is always served up or something that's another version of something that I watched on a whim is served up. I, I it's a I don't know how curation makes makes a comeback in an algorithm-driven world, but it does have a role. I think it's probably the easiest answer.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Go on, Emily.
3: Yeah, find a way
2: to monetize him. it, find a way
3: to monetize it, find a way to monetize <laughs> yeah, it. I just the ad, ad thing such a, the, the dirty, I mean, the, the sort of the, the the thing that people will say sotto voce is the, you know, the and, and in whispers is the ad market is totally broken, right? That that there's, um, <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: uh, there's a guy who I, I really respect, uh, uh, the CEO of Simul Media, Dave Morgan, and he writes about this and he's just been talking about like, like why are we living through a moment where everybody's taking all the ad tech that very clearly did not work mm-hmm. in display and repurposing it for video. Why is this happening? And like, why does this market work this way? Because it should, like it's, everybody understands that the market shouldn't work this way, but then they make, but then they perpetuate all the bad mistakes of the past markets that didn't work. And so it, it's a, it's a really messy moment for advertising. I've stopped writing about it mainly because you know if I, you're sort of writing about a broken glass, right? That's like, you're describing different shards of a broken glass. And at some point, people don't want to know that. Like, they just like, okay, there's a broken glass. That's all I need to know. Thank you, right? That it's, nobody needs to know that a shard happens to look like a diamond, right? That's like, there's just no, there's no reason to go into the details if it doesn't tie into something much greater. And it's very hard to pull the, pull a bigger picture out of all the little details. Yeah,
0: it's tricky, isn't it? It yeah. kind of almost feels a bit like the algorithms kind of drive uh, driving the car that kind of the ad industry is all in and and it's going somewhere, so nobody kind of really worries too much about it. But like, <laughs> it doesn't. But do you mean it doesn't feel like there's anyone behind the wheel a lot of the time?
3: Yes, I, I, I agree, 120. It doesn't, there, there, and I think the people who are, tr- you know, the trade organizations that are trying to drive the conversation forward and the, are are finding that. I mean, I, I went to an IAB video leadership summit a year ago and. You know, the, it was the differences in not opinion, but in perspective, like in terms of what people were seeing and whether they thought it was positive or negative were stark. They weren't like, they weren't, they weren't disagreements over nuance. It was like somebody saying this thing works and somebody saying this thing really doesn't work and here's the evidence and the other person saying, Mm -hmm. well, I don't care about the evidence because I've, I have, I've seen it myself and your evidence doesn't tell the story that my evidence tells, tells me so like it's very clear that there's, there are disconnects here. And so everybody kind of left, you know, happy to have seen each other, but also frustrated that, that there was no aggregation moment, right? There's no curatorial moment. There was nothing that sort of moved everybody and in, 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 as a herd in the right direction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think um, just before we wrap up, I wanted to speak about gaming and, and how important gaming is to the younger generations, particularly, kids um, but you know we've seen the last of us do pretty well as well so you know we've got we've got gaming that's enjoying this kind of resurgence is being taken seriously by creative storytellers uh, and in the last few weeks that um, there's been announced that they're making you know there's a, a couple of shows in development that are making narrative animation out of Roblox games so there's twilight daycare there's one called creatures of scenario i wonder if you can foresee a, a a time when, much like Netflix, took Cocomelon from YouTube, are we gonna see narrative, scripted narrative kind of animated content that perhaps is coming more from places like Roblox, even Fortnite Creative?
3: I mean, I, I think the answer is, I'll start with the answer that I know, which is I know from a, a, a sort of a C-suite executive, one of the major gaming companies, that what they're seeing are uh, Gen, Alpha, you know, waking up, playing their PlayStations or Xboxes for 15 minutes and then starting their school day. Um, and that used to be time where people watch cartoons and and, uh, and and morning programming. And so you start to, you know, you start to have to kind of reverse engineer, let's say from 2030, because that's kind of what EA is, is starting to talk about with their investors. They say, you know, by 2030, we're going to have all these franchises and we are going to be uh, have this hyper engaged gen alpha community, um, globally. And when you, when you start following that logic and I, I want to come back to Roblox, but, but we start following that logic. You start to say, all right, there's IP, there's experiences, there's characters that these people are going to become familiar with. And you know, EA is not going into original content production for video or streaming, but. Your point the IP is that much more a day to day part of people's lives, which you know could be what explains the success of Last of Us, right? Um, versus something like Castlevania, which is like 40 years old and this has not been a day to day part of anybody's lives <laughs> for a long time. Um, and so I, I sort of wonder about And so, if you take that logic and go back to Roblox, you'd be like, and foot in Fortnite, you think. Yeah, I mean like it it becomes a question of 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 what you know what it is about the day-to-day experience that can be replicated in a show, right? I mean that the beauty of The Last of Us is that it was written um uh, it was written kind of cinematically as a game and they knew that it could mm-hmm. also be a show, but and things had to fall in place for it to become a show. And so I think that's the simple that's a simple answer and probably won't be the only answer to your question, but I do think that the data suggests that there is, you know, the data suggests that the sort of Gen Z, Gen Alpha at this point are like 50, 50 on gaming and streaming. So um, it be, it, you know, it, it's an interesting question of what are the stories um, that they, that they've experienced that will also work in another format. And I, I you know, I, I don't know. Uh, and I don't know mm-hmm. if Roblox is thinking about that. And I don't know if the nature of these platforms where the stories are ephemeral, right? That you play the game and, and then you know there's sort of overarching storylines, but the experience for the users is, is ephemeral. I don't know. It's um, uh, it's it's the it, we are at a point though where you, you I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation. So that'll be um, that'll be absolutely worth watching and then circling back and, and reviewing. Mm.
1: I think the looking at YouTube, the machinima content that's on YouTube, where people are playing the games and and making their own little stories out of it has been so popular. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will stretch into a long form series or or narrative content. I mean, I guess it it, it might, right? You know, um, kids still like narrative. They like stories based around characters that they love, even if they just manipulate them on Roblox and largely hang out, don't necessarily do much with them. but it's it's something I think, I think your point is right, actually. I think we'll see a lot of experimentation, but I wouldn't be surprised if one or two do land, whether it is Twilight Daycare. Um, Yeah. And I think it's going to be a really interesting source of new narrative, I think in the, in the next 12 months or so.
2: I think it definitely has to Joe. I think I'll take my money. Just take my money. (laughs) 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 Take my money, place the bet. Like it, you know, and then like you say, not every single, not every single IP, but, you know, there's still depth being built there, you know, and I think there's been like there has been a bit of a struggle with Hollywood to convert game, you know, gaming to, to game, games to streaming a bit. There's definitely been like cultural disconnect between the two industries um, and it's taken a while to, for, for them to get it really, really right, which yeah. I think, you know, The Last of Us has done. Um and there's been iterations that haven't been as strong and, 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 and there'll be those same teething issues with the metaverse and metaverse games and and, and traditional media formats, but it has to happen. It has to happen. Definitely.
3: Yeah. I mean and, and just one last point on that. I just I do think that the um that it does also reflect the thing that we were talking about earlier, right? That that gaming is a direct to consumer business that, that evolves based on consumer feedback, consumer engagement, the super passionate fans. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. and Hollywood doesn't.
0: Yeah. And, and interestingly, the production side of it is merging as well, really. So particularly on the animation is that now animation for you with the same engines that a lot of gaming um, pro- programmers use. So you're kind of having teams that are kind of moving from gaming to animation and back again. So that so yes. that makes a difference in terms of the mindset of the team. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the unity,
3: the unity, and unity platform. That that uh, that that is the dirty. That, that's a very that, like we could have a whole other podcast conversation on how that impacts. The, <laughs> but it's it's a huge point you've just made. It's huge. It's, and nobody's and, and I know people in the FX business who don't either. They haven't begun to appreciate it, or they appreciate it and they won't share it with me. But like the fact that you know the minute all this Hollywood production goes down, you know, people who are very good at working on the. Um, What's the Epic Games one? I'm just totally blanking because it's
1: Unreal Unreal Engine. Yeah,
3: Unreal and the Unity Engine. Like you have all these people who work on these two platforms for visual effects, and you know the more that Hollywood production goes down, the more the gaming is going to go up. But to your point, like it's a seamless transition to go between both for design, and I think that that may be kind of the really interesting market dynamic that that it's we won't get a lot of visibility into just because of the nature of the of the fx market but in the post-production marketplace but i do think that to your point and i'm happy that you raise it because it's a really important point is that that the talent behind all the uh, of the way that these shows are made are are sitting literally like you know the colossus of roads they got one foot on one side one foot on the other mm-hmm. and they are it's, it's a really powerful place they're in it's also a powerful dynamic that's. Probably more important shaping where the future of entertainment's going than like any of these CEOs thinks of uh, thinks they're doing.
0: Great, that's a follow up discussion then for for, sure. for another uh, episode.
3: I love that topic. I just I've no I don't know how to begin to research it, but I love it.
1: <laughs> we've we've gotten through most of everything, and
3: yeah.
1: almost an hour has gone, which seems like a few minutes.
3: No, I, I really love chatting with you guys. Really excited. I mean, it's you, know, you sort of walk through the wilderness, then you hear people speaking your language and you get very excited. So it, it's been great to connect with you guys and I admire all of your work because uh, I follow each of you on, on the various different platforms. So it's a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: And would you like to just give a quick plug for your uh, newsletter for our listeners?
3: Sure. So um, So I write parkour, about two essays per week. Uh, I really focus on something that's happened in media and try and connect the dots for you. It's something seismic and just try to connect the dots for you in a way that you may not be seeing. Uh, quietly, I'm sort of emphasizing on the direct-to-consumer business logic and the disconnects between that business logic and then sort of legacy media business logic. And uh, There's other fun stuff that, that plays out in there, but that's really the, 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 the gist of what I do. And then. Um, and then I also have the medium shift column and you can sign up for both. Uh, you can read both and sign up for both on, uh, on the information.com. Um, but you can also learn more about me on parkour.com, uh, at P A R Q O R.com.
1: Great. Thank you so much for joining us. That's been absolutely fascinating.
3: No, real pleasure guys. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks guys.